Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. I'm joined today by Dr. Richard Haas, the President of the Council on Foreign Relations, who is in Dallas to discuss his most recent book, A World in Disarray. Prior to joining the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Haas served as the Senior Middle East Advisor to President George H.W. Bush and as the Director of the Policy Planning Staff under then-Secretary of State Colin Powell. Welcome. Great to be here. Before jumping to the headlines that are at the top of all of our minds concerning North Korea, Russia, and the rocky start, certainly of the Trump administration's first month, especially in the realm of national security, would you summarize for us a central theme of your book, how the international order has and is changing, and also what does this mean for the conduct of our nation's foreign policy? The book begins from the premise that the world is in considerable disarray, and I don't think that's wildly debatable if one looks at a Middle East that has in many ways unraveled, a Europe that's more uncertain, unstable than really at any time since World War II, one could argue, given the rise of China and the recklessness of North Korea and Asia, given all sorts of issues where there's a gap between challenges at the global level and international responses. So I think the disarray is pretty clear. My argument is we got here really for three sets of reasons. One has to do simply with some changes in the international system which have real consequences for us. End of the Cold War, the loss of the discipline of Cold War, the rise of all sorts of medium states and non-state actors like ISIS or Al-Qaeda who have real capacity and the real ability to make a difference, often a negative difference. You've got now also a decentralization of decision making. Again, you've got so many more players in the world who can make a difference. You've got globalization. These vast and fast flows of just about anything and everything where, again, the world hasn't figured out how to manage them. And this deals with everything from greenhouse gases to terrorists to refugees to Pandemics. Uh, both real viruses and computer viruses. Exactly right. I think that's one set of reasons. Second of all, I think we, the United States, though, bear considerable responsibility as well, both for things we've done, what I call acts of commission, the 2003 Iraq War, the invasion of Libya by President Obama. President Obama's decision to take all U.S. forces out of Iraq after Iraq was in many ways restabilized, and then also acts of omission. Here, President Obama's decision not to do all sorts of things in Syria, not to honor the red line, not to follow up the invasion of uh, Libya. And for President Trump, the decision to kill off the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was a trade agreement, as many will know, that involved more than the countries and represented, what, more than 40 percent of the world's economy. Mm -hmm and doing that had real consequences for how the United States was perceived around the world. So my argument is we've arrived at a point of considerable disarray. What that means is a few things. One is this is as daunting an inbox as any president has had. Greet him. And when I wrote the book, I didn't know who the president was going to be. I mean, this inbox could have been there for Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump. I didn't know. But candidates can choose everything they want, from running mates to policies. The one thing they can't choose is their inbox. So I knew whoever won was going to face this incredible challenge. That's part of, that's really to me, the, you know, the fundamental reality. You talk about a concept of sovereign obligation. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Well, you know, the world for several hundred years has been organized around this principle of sovereignty. The idea that states don't invade one another and they don't really interfere inside one another. But it's been violated, obviously, World War II, most dramatically. More recently, the, what the Russians did in Crimea, what they're doing now in eastern Ukraine, what Saddam Hussein did in Kuwait 25 years ago. But this is the basic organizing principle. And my argument is this is still necessary. We do not want to have a world of frequent invasions. 
but it's no longer adequate. And it gets back to what we were talking about a minute ago. Given globalization, nothing stays local for long. If terrorists or hackers operate out of a country, they threaten everybody else. If there's a conflict in one part of the world and refugees are generated, look what just happened in Europe. Climate change. If you know, countries operate all these coal plants, they'll increase the amount of greenhouse gases they put in the atmosphere. All of us will suffer, if you will, from, from climate change. So my argument is simply that we need to have now what I call World Order 2.0, in which countries continue to respect sovereignty, but they also accept the reality that what goes on within their territory is no longer their business alone that we now have the obligations to monitor and regulate and control what goes on in our territory because it affects everybody else. And from the point of view of the United States, that means we have to monitor and regulate what goes on within American territory that could adversely affect others. But in return, we should make the cornerstone of our foreign policy, that we try to get others to sign up to the set of rules that all the obligations that other sovereign states will follow. We then would agree how to incentivize countries to live up to those rules and norms. And we'd also try to get people to agree, well, what happens when a country refuses to? What sort of penalties or enforcement mechanisms do we introduce then? Let's now turn to some of the events that are certainly in the headlines. And yesterday, President Trump announced at this press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu an apparent change in U.S. policy away from the two-state solution to one state. Farid Zakaria this morning said he didn't know if the president was speaking extemporaneously, was poorly briefed, or was this a conscious, thought-out change in policy? What do you think, Richard? I think the adjective you used was an apparent change of policy, and that gets at Farid Zakaria's point. We don't know. I hope it was not a change of policy. It's not that the two-state solution is going to happen anytime soon. The situation is decidedly unripe for it. On the other hand, it's very much in the interests of both Palestinians and Israelis that it does, and particularly for Israel. If Israel wants to remain a Jewish, democratic, secure, and prosperous country, I actually believe it needs this two-state approach. Otherwise, it will face fundamental questions about its future. Palestinians obviously want a state. I just don't see viable or desirable alternatives. And what worried me about what President Trump said beyond the specifics of the Israeli-Palestinian equation was the way it was done. And that gets again at this point. It was seemed to be a little bit casual or cavalier. Before they really had met. Before they had met, which was, shall we say, unprecedented in my experience having worked for four presidents. And what I think this administration has got to internalize, and this president has to internalize, is that what the president says is parsed really carefully. Word matter. And I don't care if it's in a tweet, it's in an inaugural speech, or in the kind of statement yesterday. It's just got to be done with greater care, and whether you're talking about a one versus two China policy, or one versus two states in the Middle East. These things have tremendous consequences, and unless the United States is seen as careful and reliable and predictable, unless people understand that what we say is consciously careful, and that they ought to take everything we say literally. It sets in motion, I think, a world in which American influence suffers dramatically. You know, there were reports this morning that the intelligence establishment is either withholding or not wanting to give President Trump all the information that they have because they're concerned about mm -hmm. his ability to keep secrets or right. where it might get to Russia. And this is a really serious, well, yeah, it has if serious those report, implications. If those reports are true, it's troubling on all sorts of ways. It would be a reflection of a near total breakdown in confidence and trust between this administration and this president on one hand and the intelligence community on the other. 
and we know that that relationship has been rocked. I hope this isn't true because the president needs to have intelligence in order to make informed decisions. You know, we're still what? This is still the first month of this administration. The mere fact that stories like this could surface, whether they're accurate or not, is troublesome. And this, to me, gets to the point that this isn't an administration, as I said before, it inherited a world of disarray, but now itself is characterized by disarray. There, you know, the resignation or firing of the national security advisor after, what, three and a half weeks this breakdown of relations between the president and the intelligence community. The fact that after nearly a month, neither the Secretary of State nor the Secretary of Defense has one single staffer. That's been appointed. They don't have deputies, they don't have undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, or anybody else. It isn't working. And we don't have the luxury of a whole lot of time, because for, for all we know, a crisis is going to hit this inbox tomorrow. So this has got to be fixed ASAP. You know, we just have another minute. I do want to ask you to follow up on what you said about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The United States has essentially withdrawn. Does that put China in the driver's seat? More broadly, it helps China somewhat in terms of trying to organize a regional trading agreement. Instead of becoming a race to the top, it becomes more a race to the middle or bottom. But more broadly, whenever the United States abdicates, China will not be the beneficiary. No one will be the beneficiary. The alternative to a U.S.-led Asia or the alternative to a U.S.-led world is not going to be a somebody else-led world. It's going to be a world of not just disarray, but real disorder or even chaos. We have glimpses of that in the Middle East. So I hope that we find a way to revisit what's become this embrace of protectionism, this antipathy towards trade. But more broadly, unless the United States leads and acts, the world will begin to unravel in ways that will not just be bad for others. But again, nothing stays local. If the world gets in worse shape, the United States will be in worse shape. Thank you very much, Richard Haas, author of A World in Disarray, American Foreign Policy and the Crisis of the Old Order. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com. <laughs>